As we're studying God's grace, it's, it's uh, unmistakable that at the cross is where all of God's grace comes to a head. There's, there's going to be nowhere in all of the Word of God that we can study to see what grace looks like better than the cross where Jesus died. And as I meditated on that this week, my mind went to the, 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 uh, the reality of that day. And so I want to challenge you men to do something. I don't challenge our guys very often, but you, you men, I want to challenge you to do something. This week and in the weeks to come, I want to challenge you to think on what I preached this morning. I want to challenge you to think on the four major points that I'm going to share. And I want to challenge you to do this. I want to challenge you to watch The Passion of Christ. If you've never seen it, you need to. And if you've already seen it, you need to see it again. I want us to have a good picture of what a man of God looks like. It's something we've lost sight of in this culture. When we think of what a man of God would look like in this culture, he's typically some soft, weak guy that just loves everybody. When we look at what Jesus did at the cross, it was anything but soft. It was anything but weak. And I want to submit to you, there's really never been a better picture of what toughness looks like than what Jesus went through. You men specifically, I just want you to enter into the moment with me. You know, I don't need a show of hands. I'm just going to ask some questions. You don't need to raise your hand up if the answer is yes. But first question is, have you ever had anybody spit in your face? Have you ever had anybody physically pluck hairs, the beard, out of your face? Have you ever had anybody strip you basically naked, tie your hands to a post, and nearly beat you to death publicly as they mocked you in front of hundreds of onlookers? Have you ever had anybody take something that resembled a crown of thorns and place it on your head and then blindfold you and hit you over the top of a head with a staff, mocking you, asking you to just guess who it was that hit you over the head? Have you ever endured any type of that type of torture and torment? Because that's what Jesus went through. And as I was thinking about that, I'm going to come back to that. I want you to have that picture in your mind. That's why I really want you to watch The Passion of the Christ. So this is the difference between the minds of men and the minds of ladies. I was thinking about this this week, and my mind went to, of all things, a scene in the movie Man of Steel, Superman. And so that's where my mind went. And if you've ever seen the film... You'll remember there's a, there's, a, there's a spot in that film where Superman, not dressed as, you know, in his Superman outfit, but just as normal Clark Kent, he goes to a restaurant to eat. And there's some, some, some guys that are drinking and kind of talking ways they should and off in a corner. And one of the guys does something or says something inappropriately to the waitress and Superman gets up and is like, basically, hey, leave her alone. And if you remember the scene, the guy's like, who are you? 
and starts mocking him and says some really mean-spirited things to him and most and then gets up and literally pushes him. Most of us are like, come on, man, tear that guy up. Like all of us know who he is. We know that's Superman. The guy doesn't. And if you know the scene, the guy eventually takes is either a beer or it was a, a, a cup with beer in it, and he throws it at him, and there's Superman standing there, beer running down all over him, looking like he just got punked on. And we're thinking to ourselves, oh, dude, throw that guy through a wall. And Superman turns around and walks out and refuses to use his power in that moment simply to defend himself. My mind went to that scene, of all scenes, when I was thinking about Jesus being stripped nearly naked and beaten nearly to death in front of everybody and everybody mocking and thinking, oh, you know, they're humiliating this guy. And I'm thinking to myself, that's the one who actually spoke and created it all. That's the one who told the stars to turn on and they just obeyed. That's the one who tells the sea to quit roaring, and it's just calm. And there he is. It's not as if he was powerless. It's not as if he was hopelessly doomed to the, you know, the threats of the mob. This is one with all power making the decision to lay it down at that moment for a greater cause. And so, men, what we've got to understand is that being a great man of God is not about being weak. It's not about being passive. It's not about being a pansy. It's not about just being so compassionate and so loving all the time that, that, that people just want to walk up and give us a hug. And so I want us to examine Jesus the man, what being a man of grace looks like, and I want us to do so by examining the greatest act of grace Jesus ever showed us, and that was what happened at the cross. And what happened there was so brutal that as we read it, Jesus' prayer was, Father, please don't make me go through this. This is the only thing Jesus ever prayed that he wouldn't have to do that God's will was for him to do. And he didn't just pray it once, he prayed it three times. So with that in mind, there are, I'm going to say there are four facts about God's grace that we see clearer at the cross. I want us to study them this morning. None of these are mind benders, but I want us to talk about them and, and, and meditate on them as men together. Number one, God's grace is selfless. So I just read the text once, Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done, if you read the whole, uh, the whole narrative, Jesus actually prays it three times. God's grace is entirely selfless. Jesus was willing to say, I don't want to do this. I'm willing to lay down my will for what is better for you what is better for those who need lifted up? We all need it lifted up. Jesus said, I'm willing to lay down my will for you. And what I want us to consider this morning, men, is that truly being selfless means laying down our rights. It means laying down our will. There's an interesting passage 
in uh, John chapter 15 and verse 13, most of you are going to be familiar with this passage or have at least heard it quoted at one point in your life. Greater man has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Yes. When you go to see that text, and I challenge you, if you want to, go do it. Google it later. Um, the, the text actually says this, greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his soul for his friends. It's the word suke. It's translated soul almost every other time in the Bible it ever comes up. It's where we get our word psychology from, psychology, the study of the soul. Jesus did not say, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. He said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his soul for his friends. I've always been perplexed why every single uh, version uses the word life. Even those that are more literal, like the ESV or the King James Version, they still use the word life. And I don't know, so I've always just guessed. I've always thought, well, maybe it sounds more poetic. Maybe they, maybe because there's this balance of what was actually said versus how do we communicate that in English. And maybe they all just really felt like, you know, we know what Jesus did. He laid down his life on the cross. And so this has to be what this really means. And so it gets translated that way. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his soul for his friends. And in the Bible, the soul is the, the place of the mind, the will, and the emotions. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that they lay down his will, his emotions, his desires for his friends. And in Jesus' case, that would lead to his death. It's interesting that when Jesus prayed, the thing he said specifically, it's very interesting. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And it was here that he prayed three times, not my will, but your will be done. You know, men, this should change the way we see Ephesians chapter 5, which talks about the way we should treat our, our wives. It says that as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so we should do the same. But make sure of it that in our own nature, the last thing that we men ever want to lay down is our will. That's the last thing. When things go wrong, well, I'm the man of the house. I got to make these calls. Just know that's the opposite of being like Jesus. In marriage counseling, I always call it the beautiful checkmate because on one hand, God calls the, the, the female, the, the woman, he calls her, the wife, to submit to the husband. Let him yield to him and let him lead when there's disagreements on how to move forward. But on the other hand, he tells the husband to lay down his will, lay down his soul, lay down his rights for what's best for her. I call it the beautiful checkmate. We see God and his design for marriage is like, it's amazing the way that it works. But nowhere does Jesus demonstrate this for us more than at the cross. And grace is entirely selfless. So men, when God calls you and I to be men of grace, it's not about being pushovers. It's about nothing mattering more than the will of God. And it's about this truth that God, what matters in my life is obeying you and doing whatever you want me to do. And there will be times in God, as, as men of grace, we're going to have to give up our pride. You have to lay down your pride, man. 
Have you ever noticed that it's in those moments, going back to that Superman film, and there's actually several others that I could have pointed to. My mind went to that one. Once it's done, there's, there's actually this, and we watch somebody lay down their pride and not use their strength for no other purpose than to teach somebody a lesson. There's actually something honorable about that, and we're kind of like, I want to be that guy. You will find that being a man of grace means that at times. You've got to lay down your pride. You don't have to win every fight. You don't have to win every argument. And, and you have got to learn to lay down your pride. You've got to give up your rights. You've got to give up your desires. You've got to give up your will when God calls you to do so. Grace is always concerned about the best interest of others. That's ultimately why Jesus died. It was for our best interest, and it was the will of God that he did so, but it was that we might have a path to being right with God. Number two this morning, notice that grace does the hard things. I'm going to read the last two verses of our our text again this morning, starting in verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly is very sorrow, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Look at those words, going a little farther, he fell on his face. Grace does the hard things. When you read the rest of this story, you'll find that Jesus' disciples went to sleep. Now, he had brought three of them with him, and three of them end up fall, all three of them end up falling asleep. And we can rest assured it's not because they were lazy. And, and it wasn't because they didn't care. Think about it, guys. These men, Jesus' disciples, were exhausted. It had been an intense week. They knew it was getting ready to culminate in his death. The the sense of evil starting to close in. They are trapped with him. The fear of what's going to take place. And you know how hard it is to sleep when adrenaline's rushing. Yet with all of this going on, they are so exhausted, they can't even stay awake. That's tired, man. Jesus is going through the same thing. And here's what it tells us. He went a little farther and fell on his face. I love those words, he went a little bit further. I don't know why he didn't just fall on his face right there and pray, but those words have always stuck out to me in this passage when I've thought about about Jesus. And, 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 And the real men of God, men of grace, they always go a little bit further than everybody else. When everyone else would have quit, When everyone else gives up, real men of God keep going. They are not weak. They are not those that just roll over and die. They do not give up. They go a little bit further until they can't go any further. And if the last thing I've got to do is just fall on my face before God and say, God, I don't know how I'm going to get any further, but no matter what, I'm going to obey you. Not my will, but yours. God, whatever that means, whatever the cost, God, what you have called me to do, I'm going to do it no matter where that leads me. And if I have to continually just go a little bit further at a time and fall on my face before God and say, God, help me through this, that's what I'm going to do. Real grace does the hard thing. 
It is not passive. And guys, this is one of the things that's happened in the church. I would say the enemy is snuck in, the devil is snuck in and taken God's terms and twisted them. We've had this talk in the last few weeks. But this is one of the tactics of the enemy to change what grace means. And we think being a man of God, think, we think being a man of grace simply means just being some passive, weak little guy that just loves people. That's not what it means. Jesus was not passive. Jesus did the hard things and said the hard things. You know, Jesus would show up to a crowd and hundreds of people around, and this is what he would say publicly. He'd look out around and he'd pick a few out like that were known to be real, you know, religious leaders. And here's what he'd say: You are hypocrites. You are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. That's pretty frank. And then he not only calls them hypocrites, he not only calls them men full of dead men's bones, whitewashed tombs, he then explains to everybody there why they're hypocrites. Imagine Jesus showing up and saying this about some of the people literally amongst us, religious leaders that are, that are teaching garbage that you can continue in your sins and be right with God. Jesus shows up and here's what he said. Woe to those who teach these little ones to sin. Right in front of them. And let's just say we've got the hypocrites over here and those that are truly seeking over here. Jesus points out the hypocrites and he says to them, you know, woe to these who, who teach you little ones to sin. And then, and then he looks at you guys and says, it'd be better for you that a millstone be tied around your neck and you'd be thrown into the ocean to drown to death than you'd be like one of these. This is what Jesus said. And somehow we've had this picture of Jesus in our mind as just this nice little guy that went around and said things that make people feel good. It's utter garbage, and this is what happens when we don't even know what the Word of God teaches. Two times in Jesus' life, at the start of his ministry and the finish of his ministry, I think that's significant. Two times, Jesus shows up in the church and just starts throwing tables over and driving people out because he was furious at the hypocrisy within the church. What am I trying to tell you this morning? Grace does the hard things. And it's not always easy. You know, there have been maybe 10 occasions in uh, 16 years of being here that people have got up and walked out on me when I was preaching. It doesn't happen all the time. 10 is really not that many. There might be a little more than that. They might have pretended they were using the bathroom and never came back. You count that, it's probably like 50. But... There's about 10 times people have literally, they wanted to make sure that they, that they wanted to be known they're walking out in protest. Every time, it has always been without fail, so far to date, every time the problem was that I was simply calling sin what it was, sin. And they just didn't want to hear it. But here's what they've said. Because half the time it gets reported back to me. They want us to know. They're trying to make a scene. Here's what they've said. I don't want to go to a church where people, everybody isn't loved. 
I don't want to go to church like that, wherever, but you know, with where where um, you know such and such or whatever is, you know, that preacher's not being loving. That is such a garbage line. And again, it's a misrepresentation of what love is. Could you imagine a scenario, worst day of American uh, uh, history as far as terror attack on American soil when, when, the tra- when the trade centers fell? Could you imagine a scenario where somebody's like on floor 50, right? And the plane drives in or flies into those buildings. The building's about to collapse. You're on floor 50. You know you've got minutes to get out of there. You're going to die. And so you head down the stairs, and every time you go down the stairs, you look past a room of somebody on that floor, and you're like, ooh, they're going to die if they stay in here. But uh, nobody wants to hear that message. I mean, I don't want to be Debbie Downer. So I'm just going to go on. Y'all have a good day. Down the next stairs, you see another set of people there just going about their days, no idea they're about to die. And it's like, well, I could warn them, but it's just not a very loving thing to say. Hey, man, you're about to die, right? Nobody wants to hear that. So you guys have a good day. This is what we've been told we're supposed to do in Christianity. Somehow let sinners split hell wide open while we make them feel good about it. It's nonsense. We've been told, this is what happens when you don't know your Bible. We've been told that somehow the ultimate aim of church is to make people feel good when they leave. Jesus wasn't about making people feel good when they left. He was about telling the truth and letting people deal with the truth. Several years ago, out in Florida, there was a group of Christian college students that were trying to test out a new way of evangelizing, and so their idea was, that. and and, and there's a bunch of people, it wasn't just guys, but there's a bunch of guys and gals, their idea was to to make a big sign that simply said, free hugs. That's all it said, free hugs. And they set out uh, on this beach where, you know, people are walking by, just like, free hugs. And every now and then, somebody would come in for a free hug. They'd hug them and they'd tell them, Jesus loves you. Let them go on their way. What garbage. I mean, to give you a hug, when he tell you Jesus loves you, meanwhile, I'm going to let you die in your sin and split hell wide open. It's just stupid. Can you imagine a scenario where Jesus shows up to all these hypocrites and all these people that are acting like they're right with God that aren't, and, and rather than telling them the truth and dealing with them, Jesus, can you imagine a scenario where we're reading it where Jesus somehow just sticks up a sign that's like free hugs? How did we get there, church? How, did it, how is it possible that a group of college students would legitimately think this is Christianity? The answer being, we have lost sight of what real Christianity is. We have lost sight of what real grace is. We have lost sight of what the love of God looks like. We have lost sight of the truth that grace does the hard things. It says the hard things. And what's happened is, is under the false definition of grace, we have given ourselves rooms to be cowards. We're not going to call sin, sin. Are you leaving, (laughs) ma'am? 
<laughs> hey, our, our first-time visitors are like, no way. Hey, that's, that's one of my children's church directors right there. Been here for 10 years. We're friends. So, but I still might do it to you if you get up. Grace says the hard things. Now, I want to talk about saying the hard things. Jesus never said the hard things for trying to shame anybody. That wasn't the purpose. And I promise you, I'm not trying to shame anybody this morning because shame does not actually change us. But if we are not, as we, we talked about in Paul's conversion, grace confronts us, right? If we're not confronted with the truth, we're not, we will never face ourselves honestly and deal with the fact that I'm not right with God. And grace says boldly and compassionately the truth. Sin is still sin. No, you cannot continue in your homosexuality and be right with God. No, you cannot continue in your fornication and be right with God. No, you cannot continue in your drunkenness and be right with God. No, you cannot practice these things and enter the kingdom of God. No, you cannot be a liar and enter the kingdom of God. You must repent of your sins. And grace, as we've already discovered in the sermon series, it empowers us to repent. It does not make us perfect, but it does empower us to repent and not live a lifestyle of practicing these things. Doesn't mean you're never going to do it. Doesn't mean you're never going to fail. Doesn't mean you're never going to get trapped up. But there's a great big difference between getting trapped up in something, failing in something, and practicing that thing. And men of God, men of grace, we've got to be able to say the hard things boldly, unashamedly, while still being compassionate. You know, I'll never forget the day that I was saved, that was one of the things that really opened up my heart to receive the message, was the boldness of the preacher to say things nobody else would say. You know, I, I was raised in a, you know, rural, rural urban, uh, or a rural town, excuse me, nearby. And I had friends that said they were Christians. I had friends that went to church. But there was never any, first of all, most, probably the reason none of them were bold was because none of them were right with God to start with. I mean, there was no difference. Their lives looked very similar to everyone else's. They just supposedly believed in God. But they still lived like sinners and did what the rest of the sinners did, but they believed in God. And there seemed to be a real soft, like it doesn't really matter at all, right? God just loves you. You should come to our church, man. Like, we should all go to church. We should all go to church. We should all go to church. And church is good. I'm glad you're here, by the way. But there was sort of just this soft, like, lack of boldness that God expects anything from people. And I'll never forget when I was at the church where I got saved, the, night, the day I got saved, and that preacher was preaching with boldness I'd never seen before. I'm like, holy smokes. That dude's saying things ain't nobody else willing to say. 
But I knew he was right. I knew what he was saying was, was, was true. And I could tell he wasn't saying it because he's trying to hurt people. He literally cared enough to say it and didn't care what people thought about it. And there was a part of me that was like, this is honorable. And, and I, I like it that this guy is not pandering to me and lying to me to just try to make me feel happy. He's willing to say the hard thing, and it kind of opened up my heart a little bit. Like, well, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing, but at least I know this guy's not some fraud just trying to make me feel good about myself. And it made me want to listen to what he had to say. So grace does the hard thing, which leads me to number three. God's grace is not weakness. Take your mind back to what Jesus endured. What kind of strength did it take for Christ to endure the cross? The public humiliation, the public shame, the hatred of the very people that he had come to help. What kind of strength did that really take to endure it all? Emotional strength, inner strength, physical strength. I'm telling you, Jesus was a man's man. He was not this soft, weak idea of a man that the enemy would like us to think he was. He was a man's man. What kind of strength did that take? What kind of strength did it take as he was being crucified to say of the Romans, to look at the, uh, at the Roman soldiers crucifying and pray to God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What kind of strength did that take? You see, grace is not weakness. Real grace is the opposite of weakness. I'm just, I'm just here to tell you this morning, we need some men of God again in the house of God to rise up. This stinking garbage of mass, uh, what do they call it, toxic masculinity. It started getting peddling about 10 or 15 years ago. I can assure you that is not the problem of our country, folks. It's not the problem of the rest of the nations. It's, our problem is not toxic masculinity. Is there such a thing as men that are jerks that use their power and their strength for uh, wrong and evil purposes? You better believe it. Is the reality that that's somehow 90% of men? No, it's not. The real problem, and this is part of why we actually have so many angry men, is they're not taught that it's not wrong to be a strong man. It's not wrong to be a man's man. It's not wrong to stand up for what is right. It is not wrong to speak out against evil. It is not wrong to use your strength to further God's kingdom. And so we're not told that. Instead, from the time, it's, it's nuts. From the time they're little now, boys can't even shoot guns at each other. They can't wrestle around. They can't be rough and tough. They, they can't do the things that ultimately teaches boys how to be boys. My wife's gone this week in Honduras. And uh, I, oh man, I already started this one. Is Chris and Brittany in here? Awesome. Hey guys. Their son stayed the night with my son last night. Andrew's like, what's up? I'm like, well, I'm cleaning. I like to clean when Andrew is gone. 
and uh, I, I, I rid things that I don't think she'll notice are, are gone. It's a true story, and I'm not kidding. I threw away some pillows. I thought we had too many pillows on the couch. I'm like, no, nah, we don't need these. Too many cups in the cupboard. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I promise you, they're gone. They're out of here. But she's like, what are the boys doing? I'm like, well, Talon's staying the night with Malachi. Sorry, guys. I should have asked, but. Uh, it's like 7 o'clock, it's dark out, you know. I'm like, they're down. I made a fire for them down at the, at the uh, creek. They're down at the fire shooting BB guns in the dark. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's what they were doing. It got dark enough they needed a flashlight. I texted her back. I'm like, no worries. I got them flashlights. They're safe now. <laughs> hey, boys do need to be boys. Men need to be men. The Word of God tells us that uh, there's a passage that simply says this, act like men. There is a way men ought to act. And can men uh, get outside uh, of the boundaries? Yeah. But as as I've already said, what, what what made Jesus so amazing here, it's not that he was weak. It's that he was strong and he took that strength and used it to raise us up. And he was willing to lay down his pride and lay down his rights and lay down his will for what was best for others. But make no mistake about it, guys. God has not called us to be a bunch of weak pushovers that never stand for anything. And if there's anything that we desperately need, it is men of God to rise up and be men of God once again to call evil, evil. To say the truth, to be bold about what is right, to be unashamed of calling sin, sin, to be unashamed of telling people there is one way and only one way to be right with God, that is through Jesus Christ, that God calls us to repent of our sins, and that God is a good God. He's not a mean God. He's not a bad God. But God has called you to repent. God has called you to turn from your evil ways and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The last thing I want us to look at this morning is that God's grace gives us the best there is to give. So God's grace gives us the best there is to give. I want you to think about this question. How many of you knew somebody in your life that right now they're messed up. It might be uh, a child, might be a sibling, might be a family member, might be a friend, might be a coworker, might be you know a friend's child, might be a parent. But you know somebody, their life's really messed up, and 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 you would love to see their life changed. I want you to think about that person. And you know, I, I, men, I want you specifically, everyone can ask themselves a question, but men, I want, I want you to picture that person in your life that you just wish would change, and, and I want to ask you the question, what would you be willing to give right now if you knew for a fact it would accomplish that task? You knew for a fact it would accomplish the task, what would you be willing to give? Now let me ask it this way. What if there was only a chance it would accomplish the task? Would you still give it? No guarantee is going to change the person, but maybe it will help. Would you still give it? Now consider what God gave. So I ask you the question, 
Whatever that was, whatever that was, here's what I would do to fix that situation. Would you give up your own son? If that was the deal, that you sacrifice your own child, you, you give up the life of your child, but it will help whatever this need is. The reality is there's not a single male amongst us that would say, yeah, I would give that. But that's what God gave for you. And listen to me. He gave it for you without even the guarantee that you'd accept it. Just to provide the chance that maybe you would turn to him. God gave the best he could possibly give, his own son. But what did Jesus give? So Jesus didn't have any children, wasn't married, didn't have a wife. He gave his own life. So consider that God the Father gave the best that he has to give, and the Son gave the best that he had to give, simply to have the chance that you might turn to God. That's how much God loves you. And grace gives the best. I've had men before um, approach me and say, hey, so I want to I follow God. I want to be used by God. I want to do something, but I just don't feel worthy. You know, I don't feel like worthy of God using me. And here's what I tell those guys always. That is the wrong question. That is the absolute wrong question to ask. Am I worthy to be used by God? Here's the question you have to ask yourself. Is God worthy of your best or not? That's the question. It's not a matter of are you worthy for God. The question is, is he worthy of your best or not? And if he is, why are you not giving it to him? Why are you waiting and saying, well, I'm not giving God my best because I'm not worthy to? Is he not worthy of it? What does it have to do with you? What does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with our worthiness? Did he not give us his best and therefore we should give him our best? It's not a matter of my worthiness. It's a matter of his worthiness. If you ever begin to question the goodness of God, if you ever begin to ask yourself if God cares, Look to the cross where God gave his best. That question is forever settled there at the cross. Every question about God is really settled at the cross. Is God good? Look at the cross. How could you possibly conclude that God's not good when you see what he was willing to give for sinners at the cross? Does God love me? You want to know if God loves you or not, stop looking at all the wrong stuff that's ever happened in your life. Stop looking at all the evil in the world that's caused you pain. And look at the cross and see what God was willing to give for you so that you might be forgiven, so that you might be saved. And then ask yourself, does God love me? Because it is settled at the cross. Is God more powerful than evil? You better believe it. And you know, there's really never a place more powerful than the cross that demonstrates this. Because at the cross, it would look like, look like, it looked like evil was winning. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the man who had committed no evil, spoken no evil, committed no crimes, 
sentenced to be murdered a criminal's death. It would look like evil was winning. It would look like evil was just surrounding and God was losing. Meanwhile, really, Jesus is just working out his plan the whole time. He's in divine control. It was all part of the plan. What makes it even more ironic is that it was foretold over and over and over again in the Old Testament. So God said it was going to happen. God caused it to happen. He was in divine control the whole time. And what looked like the greatest evil in the history of the world was actually God working out his plan to demonstrate that he is more powerful than evil. He is wiser than our enemies. And then ultimately, three days later, Jesus defeats death, hell, and the grave, proving he is exactly who he said he was. He was the the Son of Almighty God who laid down His own life and raised Himself back up. You better believe it. Our God is more powerful than evil. Amen. And when you look at all that's going on in the world today, God told us it was going to happen. There would be famines and earthquakes and pestilences. A nation would rise against nation and the hearts of men would wax cold and the love of many would grow cold and men's hearts would fail them because of fear. It's all right here. Those who look around at these things and are like, where's God? Simply don't know what God has said. They don't know what this book teaches because They haven't read it for themselves. Is there life after death? Jesus proved that at the cross. Who can I trust? How about the one who rose from the dead? How about the one who defeated death, hell, and the grave all by himself? How about the one of whom's tomb is empty? You can trust him. How can I be saved after all that I've done? The answer, again, is at the cross. I see two things demonstrated at the cross. Number one, that clearly God loves me. So after all that I've done and full knowledge of the evil that I would be, I see that God still loves me. It's great news to know that God loves you. You just need to know this, that just because God loves you doesn't mean that you're saved. In fact, John 3.16 teaches us God loves the whole world. Concerning the death of the wicked, the Bible says God does not take delight in the death of the wicked. God's not up there happy and excited when people reject Him their whole life and consequently split hell wide open. God's not happy about that. In fact, He does not delight in that at all because God loves everybody. But just because God loves you doesn't mean you're saved. When I look at the cross... I see not only that God loves me, but I also see how I can be saved. I see that all the wrong that I did required a payment. And in order for a righteous God to say, you can be right with me, there had to be an atonement for all the stuff. Something had to happen for what I had done. And what Jesus ultimately does is he steps in and says, whatever that payment is, I'll take it. The payment is death. The payment is the shedding of blood for sinning against a holy and perfect God. I'll take that wrath. Let me pay the cost. And I can see in Jesus Christ the payment for every wicked thing I've ever done, for every sin I've ever committed. And I can see that I can come before God, not because somehow I fixed it all, not because I paid it off, but because somebody else fixed it for me. Somebody else paid it for me 
for me. And that somebody was Christ Jesus as he was hanging there, as he was taking my beating, as he was taking my mocking, as he was taking my death. I find my life now in his death. I find my righteousness with God through his payment of my wicked deeds. And so it's at the cross that I see how somebody like me can be saved. This morning, we'd ask our worship team if you guys would get in place. God's grace, it does the hard thing. Men, you need to know God's not calling us to be weak. He's not calling us to be passive. He's calling us to do what we do with grace. He's calling us to be strong with grace. He's calling us to recognize that when we use our strength that God has given us, we were created in his image, that we need to do so with grace, and that grace is selfless. Grace is not about blazing our own agendas, trying to change the things we want to change. Grace is about, Lord, not my will, but yours. God, what is your will in this situation? Whatever it is, God, help me to do it. Grace is about completely being sold out to God and being obedient to Him no matter the cost. It does the hard things. God's grace proves just exactly how much He loves us. How far He will go to save us. God loves you this morning. You must be important to God. For Him to have been willing to give so much just for the chance that maybe you would turn to him. This morning you might be here, and the reality is you're not right with God. Absolutely nothing could matter more. Nothing could matter more than being right with God. And if there's anything that needs to happen in your life this morning, it's that you need to get right with God. If you're not saved, you need to be saved. If you're running from God, you need to turn around. If you wonder if God's good and you wonder if God's will for your life is right, all you've got to look to the cross and just look what he was willing to do for you. And you've got to trust God like God is good. God is good. And I, and I just have to trust him in this deal. You know, if you're new to the whole Christian thing, you might be like, okay, yeah, but how do I do that? So what, what does that even mean, being saved? What does that even mean, being right with God? First of all, I confess, that's actually kind of a hard thing to explain. Kind of hard. Because at the core of it, it's more about a position of the heart than it is things that you do and don't do. At the core of it, it's about being something that you're not currently being. And so, like, how do you tell somebody to be something? So I'm going to do the best I can to explain it. What does it mean to be right with God? It means an honest acknowledgement that God... I'm not right with you. You know it. I know it. I'm still a sinner. I live by my own rules. I do my own thing. At the essence, I am my own God. I call the shots in my life. You don't get to rule over me. And I, and I acknowledge that. But God, I don't want that to be anymore. I don't want to live that way anymore. And there needs to be this honest admission with God that, Lord, you know who I am, and I know who I am, 
So Lord, please forgive me. And God, come into my life and change me. And there needs to be an honest decision in the depth of your inner being that I'm going to follow God. Is he worth following or not? Is he worthy of my life or not? And I need to make that honest decision, God, I'm going to turn and I'm going to follow you. And as I do that, I confess that to God. I talk with God about it. I often tell people, you say that the way you would say that. You just need to have a conversation with God right now and you need to be honest. And you need to ask him to forgive you and change your life. And you need to make up your mind in your heart that you're, you're going to get up different. And you're going to follow the Lord. That's repentance. And this morning, if you stand here and you need to do that, do it. Like that's something you can do in your seat. You can turn around and kneel and pray. You can, we leave space at the front of our church because we believe that there needs to be a place for people to come and pray. You're going to notice that sometimes. You've never been at a church where at the end of the service some people come and pray. Sometimes you might think that's strange. I mean, we, don't, we don't think it's strange. We think if there's anywhere that you should feel comfortable to come and face God, it's right here in church. And, and, and so we leave, like, we want to make sure there's a designated place. If you want to come and kneel and pray, come right up here and kneel and pray. If you need help praying and you want somebody to pray with you, man, grab somebody's hand. Come get me. Ask somebody, hey, would you pray with me? But absolutely nothing can be more important than responding to God when God's dealing with your heart. People are already coming. And I want to I challenge you men. I want to challenge you guys to think about these things, to be men of grace. I want to challenge you to watch the passion again and look at what Jesus was willing to go through. See how tough of a man he was. And I want to ask you ladies to be praying for the men of the Well Worship Center. Pray for your husbands. Pray for the leaders here at the Well. You be praying for us. That we would be the men that God's called us to be. That we would learn the balance of being men of strength and men of integrity and men of courage and men who do the hard things. While also being men who don't use our strength outside of the, the, the confines that God wants us to use it for. You pray for that. But if there's anything that we don't need any longer, it's a bunch of weak men. God has not called us to be soft. Weak pushovers that don't stand for anything. I'm going to tell you, this preacher believes that's why we're in the stinking mess we're in right now. Because somewhere men were afraid to stand up and say, that's garbage. That's wrong. That's evil. That's evil. 